Edify means to enlighten, encourage, and uplift individuals intellectually, morally, and spiritually. And that's exactly what our Edify podcast guests do as they share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Scott Landry. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest on our Edify podcast is Mary Fiorito, who's an attorney, public speaker, and commentator on issues involving women's leadership in the Catholic Church, work-life balance for moms, and Catholic Church administration. In addition to hosting a weekly radio show, she is a guest on many other Catholic radio programs, as well as secular radio shows when they seek a strongly pro-life voice. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here on the podcast. So we just met within the last year, but I first learned of you many years ago through your work at the Archdiocese of Chicago's pro-life ministry, and then through your close work with Cardinal Francis George when he was the Archbishop of Chicago. For Catholics, perhaps from other parts of the country, or perhaps too young to really know Cardinal George, what was he like? Oh, he was really a tremendous person. I think he's one of those archbishops and cardinals that comes along maybe once in a <laughs> once in a hundred years. He really was that special. He grew up on Chicago's northwest side in, in a community that we would probably call a, a bungalow belt. We have a lot of bungalows in Chicago. Uh, grew up in St. Pascal's Parish, kind of in a very ordinary house with his mom and dad and his older sister, Margaret. Uh, he contracted polio, however, at the age of 13. And that severely um, limited his ability to walk. He had a rather massively large <laughs> leg brace and walked with a limp from that point forward. Um, he had felt the calling to be a priest, he told me once, right after his first communion. But when he went to apply for the Archdiocesan Seminary High School, he was told he couldn't attend because the uh, administration there was worried about him being able to navigate the stairs, um, and they were worried about the number of bus changes he would have to take every day to get back and forth from his home to Quigley High School Seminary. So, uh, so he was rejected from our high school seminary, and in God's providence, came back many years later as Chicago's archbishop. Uh, his office is in that very same seminary high school building um, because they've been converted at that point into our chancery offices. So he um, discovered the Oblates of Mary Immaculate through a family friend, and they were located in downstate Illinois, almost near St. Louis in a town called Belleville. And their uh, um, seminary for their younger uh, aspirants was kind of a big ranch style house. So everything was on one floor. So so he was able uh, to go there. The, the superior came up and met with his parents and they told him, if you can walk from this end of the living room to the other end of the living room without falling, you can join. And he was able to do it. And, um, and the church really in him probably had one of um, the most intellectually astute archbishops that we've ever had. And a lot of, you know, there's there's some, of course, John Paul II, of course, you know, with his linguistic ability and his pastoral genius. Um, but it was always interesting, and you, you'll find a lot of other bishops and archbishops who would tell you this, that at the bishops' conference meetings, whenever Cardinal George got up to speak, everybody put their pens down or closed their laptops because they knew he never got up to speak unless he really had something to say, and what he would have to say would just be so inspired, intellectually grounded. Um, he had two earned doctoral degrees, which is unusual in itself, even among churchmen in the hierarchy. He had a, a PhD in, um, in, in uh, philosophy from Tulane University, um, and he had a PhD in, in 
essentially philosophy and theology and and parts of the church. So he had those two earned degrees, um, but also he was a man of language like John Paul II. Kind of a fun little fact, whenever he and John Paul II, St. John Paul were meeting, um, they used French because French was both of their best foreign languages. The Cardinal was an oblate of Mary Immaculate, which is a French order. So when he was the order's vicar general, um, as he was for a time, the, the language of the house was French. So he was completely fluent in French, spoke Italian, spoke a good deal of Spanish, um, obviously, you know, English. He, he tried to learn a little bit of Polish out of respect for Chicago's huge Polish population. He never did very well with that. That's about the only thing I can say intellectually. And I wouldn't even say he failed, but he failed to master it. I could say that. Two things about Cardinal George also. You said he earned two PhDs. Many archbishops also are awarded honorary doctorates. I'm sure he had a few of those oh, too. Oh, a list longer than my arm. That's why I just always start by mentioning the earned doctorates because he really was um, an intellectual giant. He re And I'm not just saying that because I loved him and respected him, but he really was. I, I think... Um, he was one of those people that just had this super gifted intellect, um, but he also had this sort of pastoral sensitivity so that when he was talking to other people, whether it was a you know waiter at a restaurant or you know a city sanitation worker, um, he could speak in a way that wouldn't humiliate them or embarrass them or you know um, someone told me one time about people who have that kind of IQ level, they also know that most other people aren't like them. And so the, the humble ones adjust their, their speech and their questions, et cetera, accordingly. And he always did that. I never saw him once, you know, try to embarrass somebody because they, they lacked a certain amount of knowledge or correct someone's grammar or anything like that. He was so gifted at particularly explaining the Catholic Church's intersection with public life. And for anybody that likes what we do at Catholic Vote, helping Catholics to live the truths of the Catholic faith in the public square— among all the archbishops of my lifetime, I think of two. One is Cardinal Francis George. The other is Arch, uh, the former Archbishop of Philadelphia in Denver, Archbishop Charles Chaput, was the two that have really helped form the way I think about living my faith in public and what are the issues uh, that we really need to fight about as, as Catholics, as Christians, as people who love America, but also how to do it. What are the best Best arguments to advance, and that's right. where how to be really, a Catholic in the public square. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and both and of them had, were excellent. Yeah, among all of his his columns that were published in the Archdiocese of Chicago's newspaper, The New World, there's one that I, is the most memorable to me, where he lists. This would have been so he's been gone, you know, more than five years now, so probably seven or eight years ago, but just at the time when religious liberty issues were really starting to affect the church, and he said, you know. Um, pick up an archdiocesan directory and starting on, say, page 100, lists all of our social services. And he said, you might want to commit that to memory because in 10 years that page might not be there anymore. And he said, if you had told me even two years ago that after doing adoptions for 100 years in Chicago, Catholic charities would no longer be permitted to do them, I would have, I would have told you you were out of your mind. He said, but two years later, here we are. Catholic charities, the most respected and um, you know, historic Adoption agency in Chicago could no longer do adoptions because we wouldn't place children with same-sex couples. Um, and, you know, you, you can see the way, even since the Cardinal's passing, um, 
you know, uh, other laws that, that we were told would just make people pr happy in their private lives. They wouldn't impact anybody else. We see now how the Cardinal was very prescient and, and calling this out and saying this can't stop just with the private individual because individuals live in a society, right? So um, I, I often think of that and wonder what he would say now. I mean, even even given how in five years, it's almost like 50 years have passed in terms of that kind of, you know, legislation. You've talked, Mary, that he was a gifted intellectual uh, and an intellectual leader among our bishops, not only in the United States, but across the world. You've also described his humility. Um, you shared with me a few months ago a video that Shalom TV put together as part of their Glorious Lives segment on Cardinal George. And the real emphasis of that video, I wanted to learn more about Cardinal George, but the emphasis of that video talked about his holiness and mm -hmm. was really making the case that someday, perhaps soon, there'll be folks like us who gather and try to advance the cause for Cardinal Francis George's, uh, you know, taking the first steps towards sainthood. What do you say about that, having uh, worked with him so closely? Well, I, I think he is... First of all, he was one of those people that if he heard us having this conversation, he'd reprimand both of us severely, probably me more than you. Um, and he he would be, he, I just remember, you know, he would often be called to um, preside in choir robes at the, at, you know, along the side at, a, at funerals of dignitaries, Catholic dignitaries. And I remember on more than one occasion him coming in and just being really genuinely, I don't think distraught is too light a word, um, that that there were no prayers for the repose of the person's soul. That he said, I was, you know, I just came from some kind of instant canonization, he would say, and would be very, and that would always mark in his book, his personal book, to say mass for that person's soul, because he said these assumptions, and he said, that's a work of the devil, these assumptions that everybody goes straight to heaven, that's something the devil wants us to believe so that we don't pray for people. So I want to start with that because he would not want us to uh, preclude. Um, prayers for him, and he would not want to, to presume the church's judgment. I can tell you that for sure. And however, that being said, um, I often go to the cemetery to to visit his grave. Instead of being buried in the bishop's mausoleum, which is a uh, in a cemetery just to the west of Chicago uh, called Queen of Heaven, and it's a beautiful mausoleum, um, and most of Chicago's bishops and archbishops are buried there. But he chose instead to be buried in his family plot. He's next to his mother and father uh, in, a, in a All Saints Cemetery, uh, which is right down the road from our Carmelite monastery. And he had a great love and affection for the cloistered Carmelite sister, sisters who live there, and they for him. Um, and I can't think of one time I have ever gone, Scott, without somebody else being there praying at his grave. And to me, and there, or, you know, someone's left plastic flowers or a duck or whatever, you know, a, a Cubs hat. He loved the Cubs. He, he, he would say when he was Archbishop, he loved both teams, but he, you know, he was a North Sider, so he went to Cubs games as a boy. And uh, that was one of my most kind of poignant memories because I lost my father just a few months before I lost Cardinal George, before he passed away. And then the Cubs won the World Series right after that. And I remember my daughter, who would have been about five or six at the time, I remember her saying to me, you know, that she, out of nowhere, I didn't prompt her to do this. She said, oh, mom, I wish grandpa and the cardinal were both here to see this, you know, which made me, really made me cry. It was, um, but there does seem to be already sort of um, kind of a popular devotion to him. And um, I, you know, think because I had worked so closely with him, people often write to me and say, I just wanted to tell you this story. I asked for Cardinal George to help me with this. And 
this happened right afterwards, you know, things that were clearly answers to prayer. So whether or not he, he's in purgatory and praying for us there, or he's already with the Lord, which I believe, and the reason I believe that, and I say that so definitively, again, although he'd be mad at me for doing so, is he suffered so much physically when he was on earth, and particularly the last few months of his cancer um, treatments really weren't working. He was in a lot of pain all the time. Um, and he had learned to live with suffering because of the polio in his leg and his, you know, and I remember his sister saying to me one time, the way you really understand my brother is to understand there's almost never a day he's not in some kind of pain. Um, and you never heard him complain ever. I mean, there's a great picture um, when I, it must have been around the time that uh, the bishop, the uh, cardinals rather, were um, electing um, Pope John Paul, sorry, Pope Francis. I take that back, Pope Francis. And you see them, they're all, and they're saying the rosary, and there's kind of a whole line, and you know, people of different abilities and whatever, especially in advanced age, but he's the only one in this entire row who's kneeling. And I'm sure he's the only one that had a big, I mean, a, a metal, heavy metal brace that went from his knee to his toes. And there he is kneeling. And it just, you know, um, his mother told him when he got polio, don't ever feel sorry for yourself. And he never did. But by the same token, I, my heart tells me he did his purgatory on earth because he suffered so much physically. And again, never complained. And he lived his vow of poverty to, to the letter. I mean, almost, you know, I don't want to say he was scrupulous, but we had a little joke in the office. He has a vow of poverty. We all live it with him. Um, because like on Fridays, he would just have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, we were never, even if it was someone's birthday, we weren't supposed to bring in treats on Friday. You know, he took the church's days of fast and abstinence, um, particularly around Lent, um, very, very seriously. And I know uh, also undertook additional fasting and penance for anyone who was a victim of um, priest sexual abuse. So um, he really had an internal holiness. He really lived as an oblate. You know, and the word oblate means oblation to give your life. He gave his whole life to the church with very little consideration for himself. Well, certainly he um, is somebody we can learn a lot from, but we can also be inspired by. And if you'd like to learn more about Cardinal George, we do recommend that uh, program that Shalom TV put together. The easiest way to watch it is through formed.org. Just put in their glorious lives, Cardinal George, and it's easy to find. It's about uh, an hour, 45 minutes to two hours. It's uh, very much worth your time. So Mary, oh, absolutely. with uh, switching gears, you know, you've been one of the strongest pro-life voices in the church in America in quite, uh, quite uh, for many years here, and we record this interview about a week after the oral arguments at the Supreme Court for the Dobbs, Mississippi case. How hopeful are you that Roe versus Wade will be overturned in 2022? Well, after listening to all of the oral, oral arguments that I listened to every last painful minute of it, they went about an hour longer than they were scheduled to go. Um, there was a lot of very spirited back and forth questioning and answers. Um, after hearing, and, and for those who are not attorneys or don't have a familiarity with the Supreme Court, um, the oral arguments in any particular case have 
little to no bearing on the case itself and how it's going to be decided. The justices have already decided how they're going to vote before they walk in. And it's not often that what is said at oral arguments changes their mind. So with that understanding, I think it is fairly obvious that Roe is going to be overturned. Um, the direction that some of the questions were going, uh, particularly from Justice Kavanaugh and from Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas quite forcefully grilling the attorney for the abortion clinics, asking her, where is this right to abortion found? Can, can you tell me exactly in the Constitution where it is? And her answer was all over the place, Scott. It was, it's every, apparently the right to abortion is everywhere. And it's, you know, we just need to look for it. It's, it, you know, it's in liberty, it's in privacy, it's, a, you know, all sorts of emanations and penumbras coming out of the 14th Amendment. I thought he really held her feet to the fire on that particular point. Where is it in the Constitution? Show me a place where it is. Secondly, he really grilled the abortion clinic attorney on bodily autonomy. He said, if bodily autonomy is sacrosanct and women can do whatever they want with their bodies and the unborn child has no value, then why is it we can prosecute women for, for example, ingesting illegal drugs when they're pregnant? So I thought that questioning was very good. Justice Kavanaugh went um, into a lot of detail about precedent. So that's when the Supreme Court's already made a decision about something, when, when, when a particular ruling can be revisited, like it was in the Dred Scott case, for example, with um, you know the, the, that being overturned. And, and, and that uh, was the case that overturned uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, Correct. which allowed uh, segregation on the basis of race. Correct. Yes. And so, um, so uh, you know, he went into that quite a bit. Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, asked a good number of questions. And I think, frankly, all eyes were really on her because she is so well known for being pro-life um, and, uh, you know, um, lives the dogma loudly, as as it were, uh, if you remember that phrase from her confirmation hearings for the appellate court. But um, she asked a lot of very good questions on what are called safe haven laws. And we have those now in every state in the country. And a safe haven law, what it does is to allow um, anyone to bring an unharmed infant. Uh, it can be the mother of the child, the father of the child. It can even be, you know, a sibling. Bring it to a fire station, a police station, uh, a, ho a hospital emergency room, and in some states they allow, if, if those offices are manned 24 hours a day, supervised 24 hours a day, a college campus admissions office. And so uh, that allows any woman to essentially terminate her right to her parenthood within hours after giving birth to a child. And it's no questions asked, you just give the baby to whoever is there and say, I'm invoking the safe haven law, bye, and your parental rights are immediately terminated. So because Justice Blackman in the Roe case had grounded abortion in the rights of women not to be forced into parenthood, um, Justice Barrett really hammered that point home. You can eliminate parenthood within, he, didn't, he never talked about the burden of pregnancy, he talked about the burden of parenthood, of raising a child. And so um, he, the, the, unfortunately the abortion clinic attorney came back with really bizarre and also false statements about pregnancy being 75% more dangerous than, than um, I don't know, not getting pregnant or using contraception or, or get, having an abortion. So that pregnancy was 75% more dangerous with absolutely no um, citation to a source from this at all. It's, it's just absurd. And no one, I, I'm surprised they got away with some of the lies that they did. But so all of that uh, being said, I think we are probably looking at a 6-3 decision and not a 5-4 decision. Why do I say that? Because if the chief justice does not vote with the majority, first of all, he doesn't like to see 5-4 to four cases. 
that's only going to further kind of you know, keep abortion in the forefront as being something that's not definitive, et cetera, et cetera. And the court should overturn its, you know, overturning of Roe. Um, but also because if he doesn't sign with the majority, then he forfeits his right to assign the case to the justice who will write the opinion. So my guess is for both of those reasons, he will side with the majority. Uh, I think we clearly have five justices and with his vote, we would have six. Um, a, a lot of commentators were saying that they saw Kavanaugh as the swing vote. I never saw Kavanaugh as a swing vote at all. Um, I mean, I appreciate that they understand he could see both sides of the issue, but he over and over again said the court on an issue like abortion is to be scrupulously neutral. He kept saying that we cannot take a side on this issue. This is for the people to decide. And he kept using that phrase scrupulously neutral. So I think he was absolutely showing that he, he wants this overturned. This does not belong before the Supreme Court to decide. So we all hope and we pray that 2022 brings at least the federal quote-unquote right to abortion to be overturned. Mary, one of the more controversial comments uh, from last week's Dobbs hearing came from Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She asserted that the idea that the state should protect life, that it had an interest in protecting life at any level, but in this case, the life of the inborn, uh, the unborn, is a religious issue. How should we all respond when, you know, she's not saying that to us, but somebody at a dinner table is saying that or some neighbor says that uh, to us? What's the best way to respond to that? Well, you know, back uh, in my younger days, I used to do quite a few abortion debates when we were still doing debates like that on college campuses before everybody got, you know, too sensitive to even, my goodness, in college have a debate about something. But I used to frequently debate a woman named Catherine Colbert, who was the attorney who argued the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision before the Supreme Court. So very articulate, very smart woman. And because I worked for the church, she would always say this, you know, Mary's just here to make a re religious argument. When I had, in my opening statement for 30 minutes, never mentioned religion once, you know what I'm saying? So um, first of all, uh, and this is not a disparagement at all to our religion or to any other religious denomination that believes abortion is morally wrong. So it is a human rights issue, first and foremost. That's why we have pro-life secular humanists and pro-life atheists. And there's more of those now, you know, than, than there were ever. I mean, there were a few groups back when I started 27 years ago doing this work. And there's more, more and more every year as, you know, as the number of non-religious people continues to grow. Um, so do the, the number of non-religious uh, and even atheist and agnostic pro-lifers. I, I am friends with a good number of them myself. And I like them very much as people. They are very much not like me, but they're nice people. And we, we share our common love for the unborn. Um, there are, are, they have wonderful arguments that are all rooted in science. That's where we start as pro-lifers with science, with what the knowledge God has given us. We look what science says. You look at any medical textbook, religious or non-religious, Williams Obstetrics, the most commonly used obstetrical textbook in medical schools, religious or non-religious. And all of these textbooks tell you life that is human begins at conception. In fact, uh, uh, Steve Jacobs, Dr. Steve Jacobs, who holds a PhD from the University of Chicago and a JD, a law degree from Northwestern, so two of the finest schools in the country, wrote his doctoral dissertation on when human life begins. And he surveyed 6,000 biologists worldwide, 
96% of them said that life that is human begins at conception. So that is just a scientific fact. And many of these biologists, I self-identified as strongly pro-choice. So they were just saying no, and you know, just from a biological viewpoint. Uh, secondly, Justice Sotomayor seems not to have read the amicus briefs on her own side, um, because not one of them argued that, that the unborn was not a human life. In fact, I think it was the government's attorney who was arguing for um, uh, the abortion side that slipped and called the unborn child a baby during her remarks. I found that quite interesting. Um, so it is, a, it is a scientific proposition that we begin with. We go from there with the human rights argument, which says that it shouldn't be that we discriminate against different human beings because of their size or their vulnerability or their dependency. I mean, these are not principles that we as Americans, you know, feel comfortable resting on to say who lives and who has to die, you know, so that the vulnerable, the weakest among us deserve the most protection, not, not an ability to kill them privately. There's no private right to killing in the Constitution. Now, all of that being said, we know as Catholics, right, that our Lord could have come to us any way he wanted to. Um, he's God. He could have appeared as a fully grown man. He decided to come to us as an unborn child in the womb of his mother. And if you just look back on, you know, the beautiful story of the visitation, who is the first person in scripture outside of his mom to recognize Jesus? It's another unborn child. John the Baptist recognized, you know, one unborn child recognizing another unborn child. You know, as, as our friend Bishop Barron often points out, not one word of scripture is extraneous. Every single word in those gospels is very carefully chosen. Every single story is meant to tell us something. So the gospel writers didn't just throw in stories about two unborn children just to kind of amuse us and give us cute graphics. No, they were telling us something about the dignity of the human person. Christ himself was an unborn child. So to me as a Catholic, that makes it very clear to me that unborn children have value and that, you know, what does Elizabeth say to Mary? Um, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Not who am I that the mother of the thing that could potentially develop into maybe be, you know, I mean, she doesn't make any of those qualifications. She says right away, and Jesus would have been about what, three or four weeks old at that point, because we know Mary went in haste to visit Elizabeth after she conceived Jesus. So our religion affirms what science tells us about human life, but it's not the basis of our argument. I can talk to you for about abortion for a whole hour here. I won't do that, but I could, and not mention my religion once. Mary, I'm sure those uh, who are listening to the podcast would like to read more um, of uh, what what you publish. Um, I know you uh, do a lot of your writing for Ethics and Public Policy Center. You do some writing for the DeNicholas Center at Notre Dame. You also help us out at Catholic Vote. What are the best places for people to find more of your writing or to tune into your radio program? Okay, thank you. So the radio show is on EWTN's local station in Chicago. Chicago. Uh, it's called um, Winds of Change, and I host the show every Monday. It's a live show. I host it every Monday with a former uh, criminal prosecutor for the state's attorney's office. So she, I think, tried, she is, I think she has the second number of murders uh, out of any anybody in the state's attorney's office in the Chicago area. Um, so murders she my, con that she's convicted murderers is that correct? What you right. Mean? Well, that was you know now in in Chicago we have a very different state's attorney's office that you know doesn't tend to prosecute criminals unfortunately, which is that 
that's a whole other topic for another day. But uh, so it's Winds of Change. It's from noon to 1 p.m. Uh, we, we broadcast on both AM and FM and on uh, Podbean. So you can go back and get the podcast on Podbean. And then my writings, I write for everything from the Wall Street Journal to Newsweek um, to local religious publications like our Sunday Visitor. You can go to eppc.org, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and simply click on my name on my scholar page and all of my articles will come up. Great. And we'll link those in today's show notes. So, Mary, thanks for being with us on the podcast and for all you've been doing for many years to edify our Catholic community so that together we can edify America. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this Edify podcast episode. One great way for you to help us reach more people is to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.